Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about a Gene Wolfe short story that was selected by our Patreon supporters called Alien Stones, which was originally published in Orbit 11 in 1972. And was reprinted in the story collection, The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. This is one of Wolf's rare, hard-ish science fiction stories. Alien Stones takes up the classic sci-fi trope of an interstellar spaceship on a routine voyage that is suddenly thrust into some sort of adventure. So, Brandon, I think you can probably expect that we're going to talk about some Star Trek when we get to our discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I would expect to know less. This is a story that functions in a lot of ways as a response to at least Star Trek, the original series, in my mind, and maybe feature some of Wolf's personal critiques of the hard science used on that show. But before we get there, we need to get through the recap. So why don't you get us started on that? The story opens with Gladiator reporting to Captain Daw about the heading, speed, and some other details about a ship that they're tracking through outer space. Gladiator, the onboard computer and brain of the ship, is subservient to Captain Daw in all things, including the use of missiles. Apart from being the computer, they also call the ship Gladiator. Daw orders that they continue to track the other ship and maintain battle stations. And so he makes an announcement to the rest of the ship on the comm system that includes a video function. He ensures that his face is displayed on all ship terminals, and in doing so conforms to the naval tradition that requires a captain to be both seen and heard when he speaks. In his announcement, he alerts the crew to the ongoing presence of the other vessel. He puts them at ease regarding the nature of the vessel. He doesn't really believe this other ship is a warship, but he asks that everyone stay sharp and in battle conditions, just in case. As he ends his announcement, several of his comm channels light up, and he begins to take questions from the crew. First up is Neil from Engineering. He wants to know if he can determine whether or not they're using some kind of drive technology, my assumption is like warp drive technology, based on the radiation output of this other vessel. The captain has already made these calculations, and based on those, states that the other ship had likely shut off their drive about 30 minutes ago. But the captain thinks that something is off with these readings, and he really doesn't trust them. Yeah, Captain Daw is kind of a jerk here. He berates his engineer for making assumptions, but then for good measure adds that he'd already thought of those same assumptions and actually taken action on them. He's made these calculations. And this doesn't seem to be a good way to go about motivating people. I wouldn't have particularly liked this CO if we'd had someone like this in charge of us when we were in the military. And it's certainly not what Picard would do. No, absolutely. It's not what Picard would do. But Picard also relied on his crew in a way that is demonstrably different than the way that Daw relies on his crew in this story. I think just from the opening, we're shown how much control Gladiator has over everything that the ship needs to do. And we'll get an explanation of why there is such a large crew complement later on in the story. Well, speaking of a crew complement, there are others on board who are trying to get a hold of the captain as well, including uh, Polk from Cybernetics. Daw ignores 
these other calls, particularly Polk's, in favor of his desire to communicate with the young Mrs. Young Meadow. Helen, she insists to be called. The captain doesn't feel comfortable engaging in a video chat with her, so he keeps the communication to voices only. It's clear that the captain has a more than professional interest in Mrs. Youngmeadow. She requests to come to the bridge, and Captain Daw grants her that permission. And while she's traveling up to the bridge, Daw takes another call from Wad. Daw and Wad move to a private channel to talk. Wad is situated in an alternate bridge module that is very similar in appearance to Daw's own bridge. The only thing missing in Wad's bridge module is the steel-encased Old and New Testaments that are magnetically latched to the console. Wad has been running an analysis on the objects that they're tracking in space. Apart from the electronic and structural analysis, he has run a bionic analysis. Daw questions the validity of Wad's research, and Wad answers to Daw's questioning like this. He says, I don't know if it's valid. You know what the biologists say? Man has reached the stage where he evolves through his machines. The earliest spacecraft resembled single-celled animals, pond life. The dilettante intellectuals of the time tried to give them a sexual significance. That was the only thing they knew. But they were really much closer to the things you find in a drop of pond water than to anything else. His bionic analysis shows that the ship they're tracking has an insignificant correlation to other kinds of this bionic evolution or other, I don't know, human-based evolution, or at least carbon-based life forms, I suppose. Although mankind has colonized some queer places, according to Daw, it's unlikely that the ship originates from mankind, in Wad's view. And Daw feels some embarrassment by Wad's assertion, and he really considers the consequences of whether Wad's guess is right or wrong. He thinks that Wad could win or lose a few points, he supposes. But his embarrassment runs deeper than this, because Daw, we learn, is Wad. All Daw thinks he can say for certainty, though, about this ship is that it comes from a world where they've discovered radio. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this conversation that is, I think, super interesting. One thing that we learn in this is that humanity has colonized part of the galaxy and that this has been done long enough ago to allow for independent evolution on these colonized planets. And this setting that Wolf has invented here also envisions that human planets aren't necessarily in contact with each other. And there at least seems to exist the potential for war among them, if not one actually going on right now, given that the name of the ship is Gladiator. We know it's a warship that's described to us. There's one more thing I want to say before we move on from this conversation with Wad, which is just to say that the the Old and New Testament that are bound in steel and magnetically latched to the console, Wolf describes them as battered as well. And I think that might be significant for us later. That's absolutely right. Wolf is packing this story with background details and information that aren't all related to the plot. And I think we're going to enjoy talking about why that is uh, when we get to the discussion. After Daw talks to Wad, he wonders about what a bionic analysis might say about Gladiator. And he imagines that she'd be likened to a 
caddisfly larva, an empty cylinder of odds and ends. And I, I just imagine this being like a space station with tons of modules coming off of it. Yeah, not at all sleek the way that we're used to seeing on TV just for our own visual aesthetic. This is totally chaotic, I think. Yeah, and it's kind of ugly. And and another thing we learn is that there's not really gravity. I mean, there's magnets that they used to get around, but gravity is not a big feature of this vessel, or at least false gravity in atmosphere. Well, the hatch near where Daw is standing opens, and Helen Young Meadow comes up through it. Both of them are in their full spacesuits, and we learn that they are standing on the hall of Gladiator. Helen comments on how large Gladiator is, and how the structure of the ship, separated by modules, keeps everyone apart from one another. And Daw explains to her that Gladiator is a warship, and that the men need to be near their duty stations, and that things must also be decentralized in case they're blown apart. The ship that they're gazing at also has a modular design, and Daw asks Mrs. Youngmeadow for her professional opinion of the ship's design. Helen is an empathist, an intercultural psychologist, and the design of a foreign object may help her understand the people who made it. But she's not ready to give an answer, so they fly off the hull in the direction of the other ship. While they're flying, Helen explains the function and role of an empathist. The empathist's role is to take the side of the enemy. This is something that helps the Navy because it provides them a way to understand how the enemy thinks and acts so that the Navy can react to the other's needs, to their enemy's needs. So given all this, Helen wonders why Daw has let her come along. Because another thing we learn is that, I mean, she's obviously married. She's Mrs. Young Meadow, and that her husband is also an empathist. All we learn is that Daw lies in responding to her. Yeah, it's kind of a cliffhanger ending to that section of the story. This is going to be part of the, the theme of what's going on. I have to say, I'm really interested in these empathists. The fact of them, I think, is really fascinating because it suggests that these branches of humanity that have colonized throughout the galaxy have become so alien to one another that even just linguists aren't enough for them to understand one another. And I find that very fascinating. But I also feel compelled to point out here that this is Deanna Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Not yeah. just because they're both empaths, but the name. Her name is Helen, like Helen of Troy and Deanna Troy. And I don't think this is accidental. When we get to the discussion, I'm going to actually point out some real explicit connections between this character and the development of the character Deanna Troy over the few years before The Next Generation actually makes it on the air that I think suggests that the Star Trek writer Alan Dean Foster, at least, was subscribing to Orbit at this time. I can't wait to hear about that. I think that's going to be fascinating. And I think, I think we'll show that that was the case. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> Daw and Helen have kind of slowed down their flight, and Daw takes Helen's arm as they float together in space. And he explains his action of taking her arm away uh, by saying it was just a safety precaution. The ship they're looking at is more beautiful than Gladiator, and Helen and Daw discuss whether the ship is abandoned and where on the ship the command module might be. 
Helen senses that the command module would be placed in a corner, which is exactly what the captain guesses. Helen and Daw have reached the other vessel by now, and they gain access via a hatch. The lights are on inside the vessel, but there's no airlock, and there are also no interior partitions and no chairs and no beds. It's just a network of guy wires that remind Helen of being trapped in a birdcage. Based on the existence of these guy wires and the realities of what it means to actually travel in space, uh, which Daw is very familiar with, Daw is open to the possibility that the ship was made by humans, especially because no one has come across a ship that hasn't been built by humans. Helen, though, is less convinced. She tells Daw that she loves mankind, all of mankind, not just people like her. Yet, she really doesn't like the ship that they're exploring. It feels inhuman to her, I think, is the real inference we're supposed to draw here. Daw thinks that the engineering on this ship is better than Gladiator. And he now takes a moment to organize a sweep of the ship and Helen decides to go along with him because she does not want to be alone. Right. So one of the things we learn in this scene is that Helen Youngmeadow is a different type of empath than Deanna Troy in that one of the things she's able to do is to intuit or infer things about individuals and about cultures by looking at their objects. It's, it's not that she's necessarily sensing emotions coming off of a biological creature who's in front of her or in her visual range, we might say. This conversation about where the alien bridge is located is a really nice contrast, right? It shows two people using different types of intelligence to reach the same conclusion. Helen feels her way there by a sort of intuition, right? While Daw has to think his way there through observation. And in that moment, they don't even seem to be capable of meeting in the middle there, of speaking the same language. They are at such poles here on this sort of feelings versus thoughts, intuition versus observation continuum. Yeah, and I think it's indicated here as well. And if it's not explicitly indicated in this section, it is later that Helen is a little bit bewildered by Daw's ability to make these kinds of deductions to the point where she thinks he could be an empath on some level. But also, some of her thoughts might just be the her ability to pick up on what Daw is thinking and feeling. And she's able to make her own deductions, though that's the wrong word to use with uh, empathy. She's able to feel her way to the solution by sensing what's going on with Daw. And it's just a really interesting relationship they have. I love the way it's developed throughout the story. Yeah, that's excellent. I think what I really mean to say when I point out that this is a different type of empath than Deanna Troy is, is that Deanna Troy has another sense that humans don't have because she's a betazoid. But here, Helen is using the same senses. She's using the same sight, the same smell, the same touch that Daw is. She's processing that differently than Daw is. And that's really what it means to be an empath here in this universe. And I think there is something very nice here going on in this contrast between someone who senses and calculates versus someone who feels and intuits. It's a great, great observation. It takes about 10 hours for the various parties uh, sweeping the ship to meet up with Daw and Young Meadow. Helen is surprised by the number of people she doesn't know that check in with Daw, and she wonders why there's such a large crew complement on the ship. Daw explains that 
even though Gladiator can sustain herself, adaptability is crucial to his and the Navy's mission. Being able to turn the ship into a staffed hospital or a refugee center or anything big that comes up is exactly what they are supposed to be doing with this ship. Helen hears Daw talk about this, and she suggests to him that he is proud of his command. And he is. One of the things that Daw says while he's talking about the adaptability of the ship is, we can beat our swords into plowshares if we have to, and then our plowshares back into swords. And of course, this is from the Old Testament, right? This is scriptural language here. The phrase beating swords into plowshares occurs in two places in the Bible. It's at Isaiah 2.4 and it's at Micah 4.3. And these passages, both of them, are about the involvement of God in human affairs and the establishment of permanent peace among people as a result of that. The phrase beat your plowshares back into swords occurs at Joel 3.10 in a, a totally different context, but this will be relevant when we get to our discussion. So I wanted to make sure that I pointed it out here. That's fantastic. And we should say for those who are not Bible scholars that Isaiah and uh, Michael and Joel are all prophets. Isaiah is kind of one of the major prophets, and I think uh, Micah and Joel are both minor prophets, but their function was to tell the people who had gone astray from God's plan what God's plan for them is. And peace, long-lasting peace on earth is always part of that in the Bible. Right. And that's what we'll get to. One more thing I'll say before we get on with the recap too, Brandon, is that I think is really awesome is that we get this figure here of just how many people Gladiator could actually hold. And it's half a million. He says that the ship could take on half a million refugees if they configured it properly. So it's a much bigger piece of equipment than any ship in Star Trek. Yeah, that's right, though. Uh, Star Trek often becomes a place for refugees or, or large groups of refugees. Yeah, like a hundred of them, right. not, not half a right. million. Yeah. Well, getting back to that conversation that ends with Helen asking who Watt is, or at least it shifts, uh, Daw is really struck by Helen's question because he doesn't understand how she would even know who Wad is. Uh, Gladiator, it turns out, directed one of Mrs. Young Meadows' questions to Wad to be answered. Daw wants to know what the question was, and Helen is reluctant to respond. She says only that Gladiator felt that the response required, quote, the human touch. Helen wonders if Wad is Daw's second in command, and he replies that that duty falls to Moke. Helen insists on knowing who Wad is if he's not the second in command, so Daw strikes a deal with Helen. If he tells her who Wad is, then she has to tell him the question that she asked. Daw explains that he was Wad, but grown up. He tells her how ship captains are chosen, or at least he starts to tell her this. Captains are not like other officers who get promoted. The system the Navy operates with now is closer to the British naval system that worked around the year 1800. Young boys called midshipmen were sent to work on ships and were trained from a young age to handle responsibility and duty. Those boys, when they grew up, maybe just to even be in their 20s, often made the best captains because they learned to act like a captain should rather than to be a subordinate. 
Polk comes through the hatch and interrupts Daw's explanation. He thinks he's found the computer mainframe, and this requires further investigation, especially if the ship computer has a better design than the Gladiator. The main thing the captain wants to know is what the last digits in the system registry are. Polk unlatches one of the cabinets and reveals a series of vacuum tubes behind it. And this is just Polk on Daw's command showing Mrs. Youngmeadow what the guts of the ship are, so to speak. But the fact of these vacuum tubes indicate to Daw that the ship does go in and out of atmosphere, even if they don't use an atmosphere in space. And this is because you wouldn't need a vacuum tube if you were in space. Space is a vacuum. Suddenly, Helen senses that something is very wrong, perhaps because of the number of check-ins that have occurred up until this point. And she asks where her husband is. He hasn't checked in yet. Yeah, and this is now going to drive the action for the rest of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Finding Mr. Youngmeadow. Hours later, Moak reports that no one has been able to locate Mr. Youngmeadow. Daw lets Helen know that it could just be that he's not responding to calls. And it, it's fine. As long as he's in his spacesuit, everything should be okay. The spacesuit sustains life virtually forever for its occupant. While everyone else has been searching, Mrs. Youngmeadow has also been searching, apart from Daw. They're talking on their communicator. But Mrs. Youngmeadow has also been talking to just about anybody who will listen to her. She's been asking about some charts that were found on the vessel. She's wondering about them because they were left behind by the crew of this mysterious ship. And a crew, abandoning ship, would only take what's necessary. And so the fact that the charts were left behind reveals something about the nature of these beings. Daw is in a section of the ship that he believes to be the ship's command module, and he decides to go to Mrs. Youngmeadow to put the issue of the charts to bed, and also that she's not distracting everybody else from their duties. He travels through the modules of the ship, and he curses himself for losing his way. And here we have a little Wolfian aside, a Wolfian parenthetical about Daw's religious belief, which, quote, permit any degree of self-condemnation, though they cavil at the application of the same terms to any soul but his own. And at almost exactly this moment when he's cursing himself, he hears the nearby voice of Helen and is glad that he's found her. The description of the ship's interior here as Daw is traveling through it to reach Helen is some breathtaking prose. And I just want to read a little bit of it so that listeners can have a sense of it. Wolf writes, Entering each module was like being flung from a ventilation duct into the rotunda of some incredible building. The walls of most were lined with enigmatic machines, the centers cobwebbed with cables spanning distances that dwarfed the great mechanisms they held. Light in the modules, at least in most, was like that in the first Daw had examined, bright, shadowless, and all-surrounding, but some were dim, and some dark. In these, his utility light showed shapes and cables not greatly different from those he had seen in other modules, but in the dancing shadows it cast to the remote walls, it sometimes seemed to Daw that he saw living shapes. And those living shapes and shadows are going to come back to us by the end of the story. Now that he's found the girl, Mrs. Youngmeadow, her kind of nomenclature changes to the girl here in a very odd way, and I don't know what to think about that, but 
Yeah, I mean, certainly it was a little cringy here in 2018, but we have to accept that in 1972, that stood in for women under 40, I think. Yeah, and I think here it's meant to mean like damsel in distress because she is Helen, she's Mrs. Youngmeadow, and then when she is without a husband and in distress, she's the girl. It's just an odd shift in the nomenclature of the story. Well, as I said, now that he's found her, Dog cannot admit to himself that he has come looking for her. He's ashamed to have fallen in love with an empathist because that's what everyone does. And it's why empathists are always assigned to the ship as married couples. To kind of cover up some of this shame and embarrassment, Daw addresses the issue of the charts immediately. He explains that they are star charts and that they're important because they could describe the entire system of thought of the people who built the vessel. And this matters because Gladiator won't be able to hang around for long. This is something they have to take from the vessel and basically leave. And Helen cuts the captain off as he's saying that Gladiator is actually going to be leaving this area and asks if they are going to wait for her husband to return before leaving because she won't return to Gladiator without him. So if they leave him behind, they'll be leaving them both behind. The suit's going to keep her alive until the next batch of scientists arrive, and that's fine. She'll just wait. Daw says that not to worry. He'll be waiting behind as well because they can't leave this discovery unguarded to wait for anyone else to come claim it. Young Meadow realizes that she and the captain are on the general channel, and she asks if they can move to a private channel to talk. First, She wants to apologize for her reactions to this whole situation, but she also has some questions that she wants answered. She wants to know why the captain wanted the last numbers of the computer's operating registry from Polk. And at this point, the story takes a detour that explains binary notation and computer programming, and this is going to come up just once again in the story. It's like 14 pages of the story at this point. It really breaks up up the action here. Um, But we get to the reason why, and it's really like two pages, of why uh, Mrs. Youngmeadow wants to return to this conversation. And that's because she hopes if they can get the ship's computer working, and if the ship is like Gladiator, then they can ask this ship's computer where Mr. Youngmeadow is. But Daw needs to now explain why getting the computer working will be so difficult. At this point, Helen Youngmeadow is utterly despondent because these scientists and engineers, these rational people, are finding ways to understand these alien shipbuilders. But she, the empathist, whose primary job it actually is to understand other cultures, is failing to understand them. And she's having a sort of crisis here. And this interaction then with Daw, this is her attempt to exert some sort of control, some sort of agency in the universe again here while she's feeling both powerless and a little bit helpless. Yeah, she's trying to re-justify her role because she's already a little insecure about having Daw let her come along. She's the redundant one, and she knows that because her husband was the main one. We're still in the 70s, and men are still doing all the work here. So even though empathists are married to other empathists, it's clear to me in the way this story is outlaid is that the expectation was that Mr. Young Meadow would be the primary one to understand this stuff. And I don't know, maybe he does. We'll find out. Daw pulls out one of the star charts in front of them, and he sets it to float in space. And I just love the imagery here of them just floating in space with a a star map in front of them. 
It's so cool. The star charts use calculations rooted in a base 12 number system. And I won't pretend I know anything about math here. So we're going to move through the next uh, next section pretty quickly. <laughs> Daw shows her the symbols for the alien number system. And he checks in at this point to see if she's still interested in the explanation. And this is me thinking that Wolf is trying to have some compassion on the reader who is not so interested in hard sci-fi and computer programming. Young Meadow expresses that she is, but it may just be because Daw is interested and she's picking up on that and and is empathizing with his interest. Daw's explanation about the star chart and number system continues, and Daw explains that he hoped that the last numbers in the operating registry would tell them the heading, the bearing of the crew after they abandoned the ship. Young Meadow asks if the crew really did abandon the ship, and Daw here gets a little huffy, and he tells Helen once more that they've been through the ship already, and that that's not, like, a good question to ask. Given the fact now that she's the last empathist around, she convinces Daw that she and he might go through the ship one more time just to find something that the others have been unable to find. She thinks that they'll be able to do this. Daw thinks it's a good idea because he just he really likes spending time with Helen. So he's kind of just putty in her hands. But also, there's another piece to it. Helen senses, rightly, that Daw just likes going off and exploring other spaceships. Initially, Daw responds that that's not the case because his duty lies on the bridge of the Gladiator. But he comes around to the fact that, in terms of preference, he's really just doing what he likes and he gets to do it with Mrs. Young Meadow. So they go about retracing Mr. Young Meadow's route. And Daw asks if Mr. Young Meadow would ever deviate from his assigned route. And Helen thinks that he might, because he enjoys it just like Daw. As they're searching and retracing this route, Helen waxes on about how calculus is the Latin word for stone, and that stones were used for counting objects for a long time before computers. And a lot of early stones that built the intellectual framework of civilization are now ground to dust. This is an idea I like. This is the idea of alien stones. And I'm bored by all the math, if our, if our listeners can't tell. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a math person either. But I actually say that I thought that the, this bit of this hard science fiction, which is rare for us to get in Wolf, I, you know, it's two or three pages here. I actually thought it was very interesting, this description of this alien uh, number system and also how they went about deciphering it. I thought it was actually a pretty good read. I'm not sure I would have wanted the task of recapping it either, but it was it was pretty fun. It is fun, and I don't want any of our listeners who are on the fence about reading the story to not read it because the way Wolf is able to connect these ideas to fun philosophical notions really does hang together, and it works well in the story. This comment about the stones that built math, which built you know, are the basis for engineering and computation and all this stuff being now just dust leads Daw to say that Helen has a strong sense of history and catches himself before he says, like Wad. And this recollection of Wad reminds him of the fact that Helen was going to tell him the question she asked that Gladiator thought Wad would be able to answer better than anyone else. And he reminds Helen of that as well. But Helen tells Daw that he never finished explaining how captains are chosen. So Daw 
goes back to this. Based on the midshipman analogy and the fact that he said that Wad is himself, Helen guesses that somehow Daw is training himself, like by using time travel. But this is incorrect. Rather, captains are chosen based on psychological testing that's done when they are just cadets. Instead of continuing their officer training, they're sent to a two-year school that simulates running a ship with every emergency and contingency accounted for in the training. The way that the system is able to get training material is that every naval computer, like the Gladiator, simulates a midshipman in the computer system based on the captain's youthful appearance. And it's required that the captain and crew treat this simulation as an individual. And the reason why the midshipman looks so much like the captain is so that the captain creates an empathetic or sympathetic bond with this simulation. Yeah, they have something of a conversation here about the difference between sympathy and empathy. And Helen says that before sympathy was corrupted by association with pity, it used to mean what empathy does now. I've heard people say something like this before, the sense that sympathy used to mean uh, the ability to feel things that others are feeling. But now it just means I feel sorry for you or I pity you. But this is just not true. And I, I hate to disagree with Wolf's understanding of etymology here. But both of these senses of the word are found in the 17th century. We see them side by side. They've never had these distinctions. There's no corruption that ever happened. The word has always meant both of those things simultaneously. Empathy, on the other hand, is a very new word, right? And this means something more like the ability to understand or to appreciate another person's feelings or experiences. And this word originated in the field of psychology in the 1940s. So when Wolf is using the word here, it's 25 years old. That's right. Yeah. Empathy for me has always kind of connoted an over-identification with somebody else's emotional state rather than a discrete feeling about that emotional state, which is closer to sympathy. But I think you're also absolutely right in saying that sympathy has meant both for a very long time. The goal of drama has always been to get people to sympathize and empathize. And so it's, I don't know, it's an interesting history in terms of literature as well that if anyone's interested in, they should read up about it. There's a lot of material on these words out there. (laughs) Well, as Helen Youngmeadow is bringing up this difference between empathy and sympathy, Polk interrupts them with some information. They have successfully decoded the star charts and also have determined the potential bearing that the crew of the abandoned ship was headed on. The bearing, it turns out, points right back to the location of the gladiator at various times during their tracking mission. It turns out that these two ships were tracking one another. Daw works out here that if they were being tracked too, then it's likely that nobody had time to leave the ship before the gladiator crew boarded it which means that the crew is hiding. And this is possible because of the size of the ship and the native crew's familiarity with it, just as the crew of the Gladiator would be able to hide by moving around if needed. And Daw finds this revelation funny, right? He he laughs at this. And he explains to Helen that he laughed because he was thinking of the old chimpanzee experiment. You've probably read about it. One of the first scientists to study the psychology of the non-human primates 
locked a chimp in a room full of ladders and boxes and so on. And then he peeked through the keyhole to see what he did. And he saw the chimpanzee's eye looking back at him. This story about the chimpanzee is not true. There was no psychological experiment that did this. This story is actually from an earlier science fiction story called Keyhole by Murray Leinster. It was published in December 1941 in the issue of of Thrilling Wonder Stories. That's hilarious because this doesn't sound like a sound experiment on any level. (laughs) Dahl wants to reassure Mrs. Youngmeadow and he tells her that they're in no danger. There are no more danger now than they were before. And this is because Helen is beginning to get frantic. They still have her husband. And what does Daw know about the crew of this ship or or this culture anyway? Daw rationally explains his findings and the findings of Gladiator and its crew. He tells her that the structure of the ship resembles certain kinds of crystals. It, It resembles a core stack of a computer. And he explains that there were vertebrate creatures before there were creatures with brains, and that the first brains were just little thickenings at the end of the spinal nerves near the sense organs. This ship, though, is different from that vertebrate design, and it might be something like an artificial intelligence, or maybe the ship itself is an entity. Now, the only thing they can do is try to get in touch with who is left on the ship. And Daw thinks that the only way they can do this is by trying to repair some of the damage that's been done that he can find. While Daw's explaining all of this, Helen asks him if the ship is the entity, as you said, Brandon. She also suggests that maybe it's that the crew are robots. And Daw says something that I think is really important to the theme of this story. He says, I doubt if our terms are applicable to them. And so he's saying to her, right, that our categories, the way that we even think about the world and even perhaps perceive the world, whether it's his rational observations or her emotional or empathic intuitions, are completely alien. They are as alien as they possibly could be from whatever these creatures are going to be. And I think this is important. Yeah, and this is another demonstration of where Helen has really good instincts, but is unable to psychologically process them and requires that rational balance for the processing of her emotions. It takes Daw several hours to repair broken connections and overloaded fuses. When he finishes his work, it's as if he hears a machine sighing in the distance. There's a palpable sense of relief on on the ship itself, and Helen senses this, and so she asks Daw if someone will come now. And just as she's asking this question, a human shape appears in the distance, and Helen cries out to it, calling it darling. But the thing that is headed toward them makes it clear that it is not Mr. Youngmeadow, although it is wearing his suit and it has his face. The thing explains that it is a simulation of Mr. Youngmeadow, but not Youngmeadow himself. This is emphasized a lot. And I think we're meant to really pick up on some of the simulation language here, too. It is something, though, that can talk and interact with them. It's not one of them. It's not a human. Helen asks it where her husband is. It cannot answer. Daw asks, cannot or will not? It explains that it's struggling with the meaning of their language. And Helen asks what the thing has come to tell them then. Why has it even shown up? And here's how it responds. 
it says this, that with this, the figure that looked like Young's Meadow gestured toward the repairs Daw had made. There has been enough. You have seen something of us, we now of you. There cannot be more now. We both must think. And Daw asks if they are friends. He doesn't want to have had this adventure turn into the creation of a new enemy. And the thing responds that they are not not friends, but that they all need to take time to think. And the thing takes off, and Daw, asking if Helen trusts him, tells her that Mr. Youngmeadow is dead. You know, says Helen, Daw recalls the scattered bits of rag he had seen while making the repairs, and he tells her that he knows. The two take flight back to Gladiator, and after a while in space, she asks Daw if her husband was ever alive, if he was ever even real. She thinks of Wad, who was also never on board, and maybe her husband was just a figment of their collective minds that was programmed into them before they left Earth. And she can remember the way her husband held her, but not a word he ever spoke, not, not a precise experience with his language. And Daw assures her that Mr. Young Meadow was indeed real, and that she needs to accept that. Daw has deduced something about what happened on board the ship and what happened to Mr. Young Meadow, and he wants to explain this to Helen. He explains that her husband realized the truth, that there was something aboard long before anyone else, and that he broke something in order to get their attention. His empathy was only for people and not for things, and, and in that lay his miscalculation. Helen replies that only people are important, and Daw says to other people, sometimes. Helen is really struggling in this moment. She's struggling to make sense of what has happened to her husband, and she can't really make sense of it. But this business with her suddenly worrying that he never existed, that he's been a figment that's been programmed into her for some sort of reason to make her experience on Gladiator more comfortable or something while she's out doing this mission really shows that in a moment of intense emotion that her language faculty actually even breaks down this business with not being able to remember him saying anything to her is because that part of her cognition is not working because she is overwhelmed by emotion, by empathy at this moment. Right. What she's toying with is sort of a philosophy of last Thursdayism, which is if we were to wake up last Thursday with having had all of our memories programmed into us, what difference would it make? What, how would we know the difference? And she's seeking solace in this sort of philosophy. And, and this is, I think, demonstrates Wolf's great ability to play with really complicated ideas and ground them in emotional and thematic moments. And I know a lot of our listeners, and, and, and I myself am also a fan of kind of Wolf's puzzle craft in these stories. Well, why could it be a simulation? Is it? Well, we don't know. Is Wad the real captain? Is Daw? But I think you have to look really to the themes that Wolf is developing and how he wants them to land emotionally to really even begin to ask the question of if the puzzle is worth solving. And this is one of those puzzles for me. The 
the way in which the question is raised is meant to demonstrate the trauma of the character. And it would take away the reason for the story if you were to make the story about the puzzle. But this story's not over yet. <laughs> yeah, we got one more little section. One to go more here. little section here. Yeah, back on Gladiator, Helen recalls now that she had never told Daw what she asked Gladiator that sent her to Wad. She was asking about Daw, about his childhood. And at this point, Daw hears a voice more insistent than hers in his head quote the following passage of the scripture from the New Testament. At the resurrection, therefore, of which of the seven will she be the wife? For they all had her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You err, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For at the resurrection they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And after this quote kind of flits in his mind, Daw answers that he hopes Wad told Helen the truth. Then Helen asks another question of Daw. She asks if he was watching a simulated captain while he was in training, if it looked like himself, only older. And Daw says that he doesn't think so. He thinks that he was watching a real captain who was a crusty bastard, but who generally knew what he was doing. And this is where the story ends. What a fantastic ending. So many questions that this little passage here leaves us with. Before we move into our discussion, I want to point out one thing about this bit of scripture, the the marriage at the resurrection passage here. Uh, This is from Matthew. It's at uh, 28 to 30. But this story is found in the other synoptic gospels because that's what makes them synoptic. So it's at Mark 12, 23 and also Luke 20, 33. And I just want to point that out here, because when we get to our discussion in our next episode, this passage is going to be really important. Well, before we go, there's just one more thing we want to talk about. We've started looking ahead to the future, and we are rapidly approaching the start of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. The Fifth Head of Cerberus is a real masterpiece by Gene Wolfe that broke him out of kind of the short story magazine worlds that he was writing in prior to its release. It is one of the best pieces of literature written. It stands up against his most famous works like Book of the New Sun. And we really want our listeners and our supporters to take this opportunity to buy a copy for their friends or recommend their friends get a copy out of the library or or wherever and read along with us. We want to introduce Gene Wolfe to new readers. And this is really the perfect place to start. And on our end, we're going to take out at least one ad in a sci-fi magazine to let people know about the show, let people know about Wolf, let people know there's a, a forum for them to read along and talk to other people about this amazing book. But to do that, we're going to need to hire a graphic designer, because anyone who's looked at our logo knows that neither of us should be doing that. And of course, graphic designers aren't hard to find online, but we'd really like to hire someone who is a Wolf fan, someone who knows what kind of image would really work well to encapsulate what his stories are all about and be appealing to other people. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what we'd like, uh, we're not asking anyone to do this for, for free. So if you or anyone you know is a fan of Gene Wolfe, you can contact us on the website. You can find our contact information there and give us a quote. We'd happily pay for the art we want to use for an ad. Yeah, frankly, I'm just really excited to see what people might come up with. So, well, with that bit done, Brandon, I think let's close out this episode for real now. 
I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. And you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Alien Stones. Next time you'll hear us discuss this story in full, and we hope you'll hang in for that. There's a lot of great stuff to cover. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.